Good morning. We'll be in Psalm 42 today. Voice is a little bit better than last week. <laughs> be able to hear me. Um, I selected Psalm 42 to complement last week's Psalm 136. Last week, the psalm, and so me, uh, I exhorted uh, that you need to sincerely confess your gratitude for the many colossal things that God has done and will do for his steadfast love endures forever. That you need to not get tired of confessing this, even if you have to do it 26 times in a row, which is how many verses there are. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Exhorted that the psalm only begins the list of things that we should be able to say that about God concerning. And give thanks for so many more things than those 26 things. And that all the things listed there never change. Who God is, what He's done, what He's promised. Since all those things endure forever... We never really have a good excuse to be unable to give thanks and sing that refrain for his steadfast love endures forever. But what if you are unable or find yourself stuck? Unable to rise to that kind of bold thanksgiving, that praising over and over and over. You may have been there before, may be there right now, probably will be there sometime in the future, or you just can't, you can't work up that gratitude, at least not, you know, in the moment. The Bible teaches that it is very possible, and in my own experience, likely, that sometimes when you feel that inability, it might just be sinful laziness. <laughs> or poisonous sort of bitterness towards God that needs to be confessed and repented of just immediately. You know, you haven't bothered to think about any of God's goodness to you or you've developed sort of a morbid view of God which is at odds with how God actually is. The God who so loved the world gave His only Son to die. That thing where your soul is just basically sinning against him, is not what this psalm is about. Even at his lowest moments in Psalm 42, the psalmist still believes true things about God and doesn't give up his fight for joy. So if that describes you, the, the, the sort of laziness or bitterness towards God, um, perhaps a psalm of repentance should come first, like Psalm 51 or 32. I preached 31 a couple weeks ago. But sometimes, in spite of true faith and in spite of a fight for joy, for whatever reason, the exuberant worship of Psalm 136 seems like a distant memory, far off future maybe. Well, that's what this psalm is about. So let me pray for us and we will dig into Psalm 42. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as creatures and finite 
in our understanding and in our time and in our power. Very finite. So Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, your infinitely powerful and wise Spirit, that you would give us understanding today, that you would awaken sleeping souls, that you would awaken dead souls, and cause light to shine in our hearts, that we would see you and understand your gospel and be saved, both ultimately, but also even in the moments of temptation towards despair. So we pray that you would accomplish this to your glory and that we would freely sing your praises once you have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 42. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you at in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The word of the Lord. Some psalms are easy to break up into a few points. This one, not so much. It's easy to see the sections. You have the why are you cast down my soul and the stuff before it. But inside those verses, it almost lends itself more to slow meditation, one piece at a time, one, one image at a time than a single logical point or a single logical theme. So today I'll uh, do my best, give the sense in the time that we have, sort of fly over those non-chorus, non-refrain sections. 
But you will want to have it sit on your mind for a while, reading it or even memorizing it um, to really digest it. Um, a lot of psalms like that, a lot of Proverbs too. Anyway, as we read, this psalm is by the sons of Korah, uh, David's sort of uh, musician troupe, cool band name. Uh, we don't know whether it was written um, with one of their experiences or if it's meant to be like David's experiences or just written for some other purpose. So I'll just call the main character the psalmist. I don't know if it's the sons of Korah or David that's meant to be the, the character. No one knows what miktam means or maskil or any of those uh, fancy liturgical terms. They leave it untranslated. Uh, but it has something to do with the use of this psalm in public worship. It's to the choir master, after all. So regardless of the original experience of the psalmist, it was inspired for the whole congregation to identify with and sing together and, and then it be true for. So, point one. That's just all the title stuff. Point one, verses one to four. Thirst for God. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's beautiful poetry. A lot of you probably remember the hymn that starts with those words. Um, I think Marion was just singing it this morning in Sunday school. It's so soft and so soothing. Well, I've never personally seen a deer panting for streams. Um, but if a deer is panting for streams, its experience isn't very soft or soothing. It's thirst. It's real dehydration. There's no water in sight. I'm looking for water, panting. It's an awful experience. Just breathing heavy, spits getting kind of sticky, and just all you can think about is water, water, water. I need water. This is the picture that the psalmist gives for his thirst, not for water, but for God and a specific experience with God, which I'll explain in a second. He says, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. He's a living God, God to be interacted with, a God who does things and is alive and you can go see him, metaphorically speaking, or in a temple way. So he's out there somewhere, but apparently not here. He's panting in thirst for God. I need water. I need water. I need God. I need God specifically, what? To come and appear before him. We, I think in our age, tend to psychologize as much as possible. Um, but although that, that there is a huge psychological component to this psalm, the psalmist is not primarily in search of some nebulous feeling or relief, though he does want his thirst satisfied. The end of verse 2 says what the water does. It quenches his thirst. He thirsts to come to God to appear before him. That is what he wants. He wants to come to him, to appear before him. Not merely, 
be satisfied or helped or soothed, but to appear before God. Not merely be assured by promises, there's plenty of that in here. Not merely be assured of his salvation, there's plenty of that too. But to really come into contact with the living God. Until he does, and it seems like it's been a long time, he says that his tears have been his food 24-7. No room for bread and butter and toast or whatever. I'm so full of tears already. I don't have room. Grief and mourning every day, every night. As they used to say, a dark night of the soul or spiritual melancholy, spiritually parched, dehydrated, thirsty, no energy, not interested in food. We're just crying instead. The mood has taken over. I think most of us have some experience with this state, even if you're not so expressive as to be crying all the time, (laughs) conservative, Midwestern vibes. Some of you are here frequently or maybe are this morning. Maybe you've been there a long time. God has words for the downcast soul. And Psalm 42 are some of them. Some of the words are here. Before we just plow right on through the rest of the verses, I would want to gently ask, why the tears? Why? What, what is it that's causing? What's the reason for this crying, for this despair, for this downcast turmoil? And specifically, does your reason look like the psalmist's? Does his object of thirst look like your object of thirst? Before we inject ourselves and our own uh, depressions into the psalmist's world, we need to ask ourselves, if we're talking about the same thing, what do you desire that you're not getting that's causing you this grief, this thirst? For the psalmist, the answer is to be with God himself, to appear before him, to worship in his holy temple, as we'll see later. Is that true for you? Is that the reason when you are downcast? Is that why? What are you dying of thirst for, in other words? For God and to come before Him? Well, if that's true, then proceed through the rest of the psalm, step into the psalmist's grief, apply everything to you, and wrestle with your own soul just like He is. No extra steps, we're ready. Both you and the psalmist, in that case, are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trusting that the rest will be added unto you. And it's because you're doing that that you're full of grief, because you want the kingdom so bad, because you want to appear before God so badly. I want to appear before Him, but I'm, for some reason, prevented. And this, to me, is like being killed with thirst. That's the psalmist. But if your melancholy, or whatever you'd like to call it, is something else, you have some distance between you and the psalmist that we should bridge first. What you thirst for may be something lower, even if still significant, 
thirst from relief from pain or release from sinful habits or um, thirst to see loved ones again or lower things still, things that God hasn't promised and therefore there's some sinful coveting going on. A thirst for possessions or savings or houses, thirst for a spouse or some other relationship or for an easy life, comfort, uh, some sort of rest. If that's the case, um, your, shall I say, depression without the medical sort of psychological baggage thing, that sort of depression comes not from or comes from not getting what you want, what you think will satisfy you. And if that thing is not God or something good that He has promised, you're going to need to add an extra step in your experience of this psalm as you pray, why are you cast down, my soul? You supply an answer. I'm sinning. (laughs) I'm idolizing something in the place of God and I need to subordinate that to Him. And so you add confession to the chorus. Hope in God, for I again praise Him. I've put my heart on this illegitimate thing that can never satisfy. God, give me an earnest desire to be with you and worship you. Be to me living water that if I drink it, I'll never thirst again. Right? So repentance is part of the mix in that situation. But back to the psalmist's situation. If that's you, repentance is in the mix, but you still belong here in the psalm. The psalmist, since he is seeking first God, when he deals with his sense of separation, certain things sting more, maybe in a way that we don't always understand. Verse 3 continues that his tears have been food, quote, While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Well, that's a legitimate question and one that bothers him. Not here might be his answer in a significant way. He wants to go appear before him. But this taunting brings to mind a memory a precious memory, a kind of memory that's so sweet it sours the present. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. That defines the experience of God that he's longing for. So I said earlier, he wants God but in a particular way. Well, here it is. He thirsts to come before the Lord in His holy temple in corporate worship. Worshiping the Lord with a crowd of saints. In the Sons of Korah's case, or in David's case, uh, leading it. And keeping festival, celebrating the work of the Lord, uh, resting from their labors, singing and eating, giving thanks, telling of His mighty works, a holiday, a retreat of worship. That's what He thirsts for. Now, there's a number of reasons why He or you or me might be prevented from coming before the Lord like this. Maybe it's Wednesday. 
and the difficulty of normal life is making you ache for Sunday. Maybe it's the wrong time of year in his case. Life is hard. The next festival is a few months out. Uh, can't wait for Christmas or something like that. These are normal rhythms in a fallen world where true Christians really do need to come before the Lord with their brothers and sisters to survive. Life is hard. Sin is deceitful. Pain is real. When shall I come and appear before the Lord in this kind of shouts of praise and festival? Well, that's a question of a, of a Christian. For the psalmist, uh, apparently from verse 6 and more context in Psalm 43, which goes with this one, they're kind of a pair, um, he was prevented by enemies from coming home. He's in this sort of exile. He's in the mountains on the eastern border of Israel, or I guess eastern. He, about as far east as you can go and still be kind of in the area of Israel. He wants so desperately to return to the temple and lead this throng of people into the house of God, singing all the way, holding a feast, but he can't. Now, none of us that I'm aware can relate to being exiled like this. Um, the closest thing we are to that is being bedridden or put under church discipline or maybe um, if your church closed in the last couple of years. But in both cases... If we're truly saved, those will be hard experiences. Being forced out of the congregation and out of corporate worship is a painful experience for a Christian that only increases our desire to praise God with one another. Procession in the house of God, shouts of praise, songs of praise. Being away from our worshiping fellowship will feel like dying of thirst. But, as I said at the beginning, this psalm is for the whole congregation, not just the sons of Korah or just for David. So there are ways other than being in exile um, that will be experienced in the same way. Maybe we're being hindered by our own sin from enjoying the fellowship and the worship, from making the most of it. Maybe we're cluttering the day and the morning with just busyness and worldly affairs that we could have done another time that detracts from the scent of, uh, this sense of a restful festival of worship. And you slowly get dehydrated over the years. Or just... Plainly, forgetting the gospel will strip our fellowship of sincere songs of praise and glad shouts. Where's the happiness if you forget the gospel? Well, you're going to be thirsty, too, if you are a Christian, if that's how your worship goes. So even though we aren't being prevented by force from coming to church, there are dozens of ways you can be dying of thirst, a uh, thirst for a satisfaction in God, even while technically here. After all, this psalm was for use in their worship services. <laughs> Usually it has to do with sin when we aren't physically barred from coming, bedridden or something. So the psalmist wrote of his experience in such a way that it could be sung by us in all ages. And so the refrain, why are you cast down, 
is actually a valid question, one that deserves an answer, answer from each of us. Why? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? We should want to answer that. And then say with the psalmist, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God, which is point two, just verse five. Titled, O Soul. (laughs) The word O here, it's not the same sort of breathy O, like O-H. That's just a grunt or a sigh, some emotional or physical whatever reaction. The O, just the big O, is an old word that signals address, the vocative. It's a polite way to say, hey you. (laughs) Hey you, soul, why are you cast down? Why are you cast down, soul? Well, there's a lot here. A lot of practical help for a Christian with a cast down soul. Five things, briefly. First, he talks to his soul. He makes it his business to have a little chat with himself. Soul, I've noticed that you're cast down and and there's turmoil within. I have a question I'm going to need you to answer. Why? This isn't ridiculous, out-of-control, morbid introspection. This is just plain, simple interrogation and probably some exasperation too. Like, why, soul? But if the tears are daily food, we we ought to take our, our souls to task. Answer it. Why are you cast down, soul? Second, he doubts not God, but himself. He doubts himself, not God. My soul is cast down. It's in turmoil. I'm feeling all the feelings or not being able to do the things I want to do. Therefore, something is wrong with who? Well, me. We're often far too prideful and self-justifying. We, we, we think that if we feel bad, it's definitely always the fault of someone else or even of God. Where we put the suspicion when things go bad reveals who we think is untrustworthy. For illustrate, uh, to illustrate, if, if you have old brakes, does it make sense to blame the engine if your car starts squeaking? Or as a parallel, if you know that you are the sinful creature, you're the sinner, does it make sense to blame God when your emotions are a mess? Third thing to notice about this chorus, he not only addresses his soul and questions his soul and doubts his soul, but he commands his soul. Hope in God. Our culture teaches us that it's authentic and healthy to express and just massage anything that rises from within us. If I feel pain or sadness or offense, well, it would be dishonest if I didn't just let it out, right? Vent it. Lean into it. Wrong. The psalmist commands his soul. Soul, hope in God. And fourth, it's not an empty command. It's backed up by a promise. So he preaches it to himself. He preaches to himself. 
It's the fourth thing. So I shall again praise him. Therefore, hope in God. A psalmist is fighting the fire of despair and sadness with the ironclad promise of future joy. Whether at the temple or in heaven, I shall again praise him. These circumstances aren't mine forever. They will definitely, certainly, without a doubt, change for the better at a time I don't know, but trust that God will bring it about when he sees fit. I shall again praise him. And fifth and last, this promise is grounded in who God is, in his nature. God is a saving God, and he is my God. It's what he does for those who are his. He saves. Am I in need of saving? Am I his? Well, then thank God because he's going to save. That's who he is toward his people. So with, this, with these things in his arsenal, he's addressing and he's questioning and he's commanding and he's preaching to his soul. He's wrestling hard in these days and nights. And he keeps going, he keeps going. The same refrain at the end of the psalm and at the end of Psalm 43. And we'll say more about that, about, about that at the end. He's wrestling with his soul. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. I will again praise him. He is a God of salvation and he is my God. Why are you cast down, soul? Well, point three, verses six to ten. Where is God? He starts trying to answer that question. Why are you cast down? And it's tied in with the question of the mockers. Where is God? In verse 6, he begins his answer with the implication, not here. I'm in the land of Jordan and Hermon, and his temple is so far west. I'm only remembering him while I'm in the land of Jordan, Hermon, Mount Mizar, far, far away from his temple. Why is he there? doesn't say. How long? We don't know. But God had clearly declared how a person would approach him. You wash yourself, become ceremonially clean, you enter the temple complex, you offer sacrifice for sin and thanksgiving, and, and you worship him in all these different ways. You sing, you glad shouts, there's a procession, you eat together. God is, in a very real sense, seated on his throne in the earthly Zion at the time of writing. And the psalmist is wandering the river valley of Jordan River, the mountains. God is not here. He's there. That's why my soul is cast down. But is that the whole story? Is God a, a deity that can be put into a holy of holies and contained there? Well, the answer is obviously no. It says in verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers, all of your waves have gone over me. So clearly, though his temple is far, his hand is here. All the rushing water of the literal Jordan River was put there by God and sustained by God. It's God's. I'm hearing the river 
which is to say I'm hearing God work. But then all the figurative waves of suffering, trials and tribulations that are battering him from uh, all sides, the ones that are going over him, he says, are just as much from God's hand. So God is here in the sense that everything I'm experiencing is from his hand. Everything you experience is from his hand. I'm not abandoned or orphaned. I am simply being battered by waves that God himself carefully measured and then sent my way, each one enough to hit me in just the way he wants to, but not so bad as to destroy me. I'm in God's hands. But there's even more. Next verse. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist is able to sing at least one of the lines from Psalm 136. The steadfast love of the Lord endures every day, he's saying. And then at night, even sleeping under the stars far from the temple in exile. The psalmist still has songs to sing, even just to himself. It's not in the congregation. It's not at the temple. So he longs, he thirsts for satisfaction in those ways. But he still has God protecting him. He still has God to sing to. And he still has God to pray to. So even though it's unbearable to be that far from home, He's comforted that God's love is upon him wherever he goes and that he can still worship the Lord in whatever he does. But even his prayer has more pain but also reveals trust. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So notice, even that prayer begins with confessing that God is his rock. It is to the rock that I pray, why have you forgotten me? And so we should understand this this complaint, this Um, what looks like an accusation as a confessing of his feeling to the Lord. The same feeling that he's been wrestling with when he he says, oh soul, why are you cast down? Well, here's what I'm dealing with, Lord. Uh, Why why does it seem like you have forgotten me? Why Why am I still mourning? There's enemies doing things you hate. Why do they get to keep doing this stuff? So he's doubting his soul. He confesses to God. He doubts himself, confesses to God. But here's the thing. It's not just feelings. He is actually being persecuted by enemies, being mocked for his faith. Where is your God? Don't you think in our Christian culture at least, We've lost some of the concern that the psalmist has about his enemies. Obviously, he makes his own soul his business. Why are you cast down? He's wrestling. Definitely. But he remembers that his enemies are God's business. 
So why do they get to keep doing what they do? Not only have they destroyed my ability to come home to the temple and worship the Lord in festival, but they taunt me all day long that God is never going to save me. Where is He? They say. Isn't that the sort of thing God hates the most? Getting taunted and mocked and attacking His people. So where is He? Well, that question receives no answer in this psalm nor the next. And it leads him to go back again to repeat repeat that refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I think this psalm sticks out to Christians or has so much in the history of the church because of the fact that it does not resolve, that there is not a um, deliverance that occurs like so many other psalms. There's not a point somewhere in the middle that it turns and he has definitively crossed over into rejoicing and thanksgiving and assurance and all these things. It ends. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's still wrestling. Why are you still at turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. So there's faith, but He still is commanding His soul. You need to hope in God. Why are you cast down, soul? I said earlier that Psalm 43 is a continuation. If you read ahead, the next section has the psalmist a little bit more bold, a little bit more, uh, see more faith on display. He's calling out to God for vindication and deliverance from his enemies. He prays that God would, quote, send out your light and your truth. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. So there is a sort of spiritual resolution. It appears that his soul has at least partially listened to the command, hope in God. But both psalms end with that refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul? So the wrestling is not done. The thirst is still there. He's still panting after God, far from home, far from church. He's still fighting for hope. Keeps fighting his doubts. Keeps commanding his soul and preaching to it shutting out the mocking voices, bringing his concerns to the Lord. He is relentless. So to conclude, does that describe you? When things are good or when things are bad, do you thirst for the Lord? Or is it mostly other things? And do you do battle with your own soul to keep the despair and the doubt at bay when it seems that deliverance is a long ways out? Do you even have this kind of desire to join with God's people in glad shouts and songs of praise and festival in worship of God? If not, Don't waste any time. Turn to God now. 
and throw yourself at his mercy. Jesus Christ has been slain for sinners. He is our salvation. If you do not currently thirst for God as you ought, if you do not currently seek first His kingdom and enjoy the worship of God with His people, turn to Him and confess and He is faithful to forgive all our sins. And He's just to do so because Jesus died in the place of someone who would confess His sins for these things. Turn to Him and say that you repent of your sinful depressions. And ask Him to teach you the sweet sorrow of seeking first His kingdom in this broken and sinful world. And then remember the days of old, if this is something you've ever experienced, when the only thing you want to do was lead a troop of Christians in worship. Use the power of that memory of the time that you were on fire, as it were. And then look forward to the day of deliverance as we sang in the song just before this, knowing for certain that infinite joy and perfect closeness, the things that He's looking for, is your future. Jesus has purchased it, and you will one day stand before Him and appear before Him completely free of the pains that are plaguing the psalmist and that plague you right now. And may God answer your prayer. May He grant your soul to be able to listen to the preaching that you're doing to your own soul. Hope in God. Why? For we shall again praise Him. It is certain. He is our salvation and our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You that You are a God who hears, who does draw near to us even when we wander far, that on this side of the cross You have sent Your Spirit to dwell in us and that we have free access to the Father through your Son. Lord, enable us to make use of this grace. We pray that the answer to why our, is our soul cast down would be that we long for you and not because we're missing any worldly comforts. Pray that you would assist us in repentance, that you would give cause repentance, if that is the case for us. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, quiet the mocker when he says, where is your God? That you would assure us that there will be a day when that voice will be 
shut off. Because you will come. And we will only know praise from there on out. But teach us to grapple with our own sinful souls and with the difficulty of living in this time between the times. Help us wrestle with our souls. We thank you for your grace and your promises that you will do those, those things, that you are our salvation and you are our God. In Jesus' name.